I think it's true that every single year, or nearly every single year, that I've been the minister of this church, at this particular juncture in the calendar, I've said the same thing. So I, I don't know how many summers that is, six summers or something like that. Every single summer I've said the same thing. At this point in the calendar, I've said the same thing. And I've said that the summer can be a real spiritual blessing uh, to a congregation. That the summer, these summer, these summer weeks are a real opportunity for us for reflection and self-assessment in our spiritual lives. Maybe, maybe already you see kind of what I mean by that. Um, in the summer months, congregational life slows down a little bit, doesn't it? Maybe we don't like the fact that it does that, but naturally, you know, people are away on holidays. We can see as we look around. So, an opportunity to reflect. In the summer months, family can get together as well. Another good opportunity. Some people maybe are going away on holiday in the summer months. So, an opportunity to pray and to read the Bible. You see the idea, do you? These weeks, this time of year, not just New Year, but the summer months are a wonderful opportunity for us to pause as a congregation and to reflect and assess our spiritual well-being. Well, with that in mind, do you know what? I am delighting. Uh, I, remember I said, I said that every uh, year I've said the same thing at this camp. Well, I am delighting in the providence of God. Maybe you see I am delighting in God's providence. Because just as we're talking about the need to reflect, what happens this evening? We open our Bible and we find a portion of Scripture that is absolutely perfect for that task of self-assessment. Absolutely perfect. I want you to see that it is. This is a section of Scripture that really calls on us to cut through the superficiality in congregational life. To cut to the heart of what we're about is a portion of scripture that calls on you tonight to take your spiritual temperature and to be candid and honest about what you find. And this evening, the plan is very straightforward. Really, it couldn't be any more straightforward because the plan is simply to consider three words together tonight. Three simple words. So we're going to look at reputation, we're going to look at revival, and we're going to look at reward. Reputation, revival, and reward. So can I ask you to please turn with me in your Bibles to that portion of Scripture, just to make sure that you've got it open in front of this letter in Revelation chapter 3. And let's think about that first word. Were the boys and girls listening? What was the first word? Reputation. Fantastic. Reputation. Okay, now, um, as we've gone through this sermon series, I wonder if you have been able to follow the journey that we've been on in a geographical sense. So we've done this. Have you been able to do that? Really, do you know what it is? It's really an N-shaped route, an N-shaped route that we've taken in these churches in Asia. Because we started right down the south at the coast in Ephesus. Then we worked our way north. And then we've got Smyrna. Then we go over a little bit to Pergamum, down with Thyatira, and then we're working our way south. So an N-shaped route, okay, in the churches in Revelation. Now, you must have noticed the name of the town, the city that we're stopping in this evening. Okay, tonight we come to Sardis. Sardis, not Tardis. Sardis, okay? 
So what do, what do we need to know? What was the deal with this city, with Sardis? Okay, first thing you need to know is that it was a rich city. It was an affluent place. So gold was discovered quite near Sardis and was also very often discovered in the river that ran through the heart of the town. So it's affluent, well-to-do as Sardis. Another thing you need to know is that the people, the population of that place, were a confident bunch of people. You read some early literature and they make the most of it. This, these people, oh yes, there was a bit of life about these people and they were confident and even an arrogant people. Okay? So you with me thus far? Rich, confident people? But then there's another detail about Sardis I think we need to know that had a strange geographical feature. Because just like Thyatira before it, Sardis was dominated by this big hill that overlooked the town. Here's the thing, though. The city cemetery was located up on that hill. And because of the undulating burial grounds on the hill, Sardis got a reputation. They got a nickname. The nickname was Sardis was the city of a thousand hills. Now, you're maybe looking at me and thinking, great, Andy, but this is like the Lord's Day evening. We're tired. Why are you giving us this history lesson about Sardis? Why is this? Have you gone mad? Well, no. Hang on a second. Could it not be that the Lord Jesus Christ has some of those elements in view as he writes this letter? Because look with me at the first half of verse 1. Look at verse 1 and halfway through verse 1. Do you notice that just as we said that the city had this lively reputation but was dominated by death? That's the city. Remember the cemetery dominated by death, lively rep- What does he say about the church in the city? Do you see? He said to the church, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now that's, I shake reading that. I mean, what a fearful description. Imagine hearing that said about your church. But what does it mean, friends? Like, I, I guess we all know. Can we all guess, I, I suppose, or determine what is meant by the first part of that? A rape for being alive. What do you think that means about Sardis? The other churches in the area knew about it, didn't they? Reputation for being alive. Yeah, I mean, Sardis, probably a busy church, right? Actually, had a great praise band, did Sardis, you know? And great, what's the Americans call it? VBS, is it? Sardis had a great vacation Bible school, you know? This great reputation for, for being alive. But what does that mean? That, hang on, it was dead. It was dead. Well, actually, I do not think you and I need to speculate about their deadness. I think Christ Jesus here gives us two very clear clues about why he determines that they are dead. Now, do you see these? Have a look at verse 4 for the first one. Now, look what Jesus says. You notice what he says? You see the soiled garments. Do you see what he says there? He says, uh, he speaks of a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. Does that seem vague, that expression to you? Soiled garments? Does it seem a bit strange? It's not vague. I mean, it's an expression that's used elsewhere in Revelation. And it's used not only to infer sexual immorality, but actually to speak of sexual immorality in relation to 
pagan worship and pagan idolatry. So do you begin to see the picture in Sardis? It's a bit like Thyatira, isn't it? These are people who are following after the world. People in the church pursuing culture, pursuing the sinful things of the world. So soiled garments, that's the first thing. The second clue, have a look at verse 2 here with me. Like, how are they dead? Do you, do you notice the rebuke? What's the complaint Jesus gives? Do you see it? The boys and girls, do you see it? He complains that their works were not complete. Their works were not complete. What does Jesus mean by that? I, I presume we've all heard of the Sagra Familia. All of us, we know the Sagra Familia, don't we? That Gaudi, whatever you want to say, monstrosity. I don't know what your opinion is about it, but you've heard of the Sagra Familia. Well, uh, some here see a reference to what was called the Great Temple of Artemis that was in Sardis. And it was a bit like the Sagra Familia of the day. So it's a huge place of worship that never quite got finished. You know, a huge thing. Great temple of Artemis. Huge big place that never quite completed. I think that is what's in view. Do you see what Jesus is saying about this congregation in Sardis? He's saying that their work is not complete. Why not? Because that final crucial stone was not laid on there. Their work was not complete. Their service not complete. Why not? Because it was devoid of devotion to God. Do you begin to put the pieces together? Do you begin to see into this church in Sardis? Friends, here was a church that seemed so full of life. You know, busy, bustling. So many programs in this church. But the reality is that it was devoid of spiritual life. And it was a popular church, really popular, but without God's power. And it was well known throughout the whole area. Everyone had heard about Sardis. Well known, but not well thought of by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I think tonight we are brought by God to a very contemporary problem and a very contemporary issue. Isn't it the case that perhaps more than ever that Christians today and churches today are obsessed with their reputation isn't that a big thing in the Christian world today? Everything is about uh, reputation. I mean, it didn't used to be like that. If you go back a generation or so, what would you see in a church? They would be concerned about their reputation in the town. Of course they would, but they wouldn't don't be worried about what, what, what people across the world thought of them. But that's changed, hasn't it, with the advent of the internet. And now everyone, everyone, everyone's concerned about building a name. And we could point fingers tonight, couldn't we? Couldn't we? Like other ministers, other Christians, other churches, and it's all about building this empire, building a great name for themselves. But I don't want us to point a finger out there. I want us to think about London City Presbyterian Church. And I, I, I want to start by asking you this. What sort of reputation do you think we have as a congregation? Reputation do we have? It's very, very difficult to determine, isn't it? Really difficult. I actually think that we've probably got a reasonable reputation as a church. I'll tell you why I think that. Because there's been a Bible teaching ministry here since, what, the 1940s. <laughs> a long time. And even a couple of weeks ago, I spoke to somebody who had come from literally the other side of the world to LCPC. 
And I was like, why, why, why did you come here? You know, why? and they'd heard of London City Presbyterian Church, so they were willing to make their way here. So maybe we have a good reputation, maybe we, we don't, make, but maybe we do. And what could we do about that? What could we do about it? Like, tonight as a congregation, we could bask in the glory of that, having a good reputation. Or, do you know what we could do? We could set about trying to build up a name, build on that reputation. Let's use social media to try and project a sort of image to the wider world as a church. But what are you learning from God's word tonight? Is it not this? That a good name can actually mask a dying congregation. And you see that? Isn't it the case that a reputation is no barometer at all of spiritual health? A good name can mask a dying congregation. So instead of basking in a good name, here's what I want to do. I want to lay at your doorstep some questions for you to consider this summer and these summer weeks. So friend, can I ask you this? Are you a Christian who is overly concerned with your name and with your reputation? Not concerned, but overly concerned with building up a good reputation in the congregation, the wider Christian world? Or is it different for you? Are you finding yourself that you're ruining your Christian service and your Christian work because you, like Sardis, are compromising with the world? Are you ruining all of the service of God because truly and utterly your service is devoid of devotion to God? As you tonight assess your heart and you think about your spiritual well-being, do you see signs in your heart of spiritual decay? There are lots of lessons from Sardis, but surely right up there at number one is the fact that your reputation is nowhere near as important as your relationship with Christ. Your reputation is nowhere near as important as your relationship with Jesus. So first word, reputation. Second word we've got to consider, though, is the word revival. Now, uh, recently I've come back to a book that I was reading a few months ago, and I put it down. I don't know if you're like me in that uh, regard. I will start a book, and then I will get distracted and onto something else. But I've come back to a book uh, that I was reading a few months ago, and it is the book... <laughs> A book with the worst title of any book that I've ever read in my whole life. Are you ready for this? The book that I'm reading is called Glory in the Glen. (laughs) Glory in the Glen. And it's a terrible title for a book, uh, but the book itself is really good. It's a great book. The book, what it does is it charts the numerous instances in Scottish church history for revival has broken out in Scotland. You you get the idea. Glory in the Glen. Uh, The amount of times where you've had a dwindling congregation and you've had a dying congregation and it's been sparked into radical life. Now, what do we know in here about revival? Do we know much? Have we read about revival? I would hope that all of us in here know this about revival, that it is a work of God alone. Do we know that? God alone revives. But what's clear in the Bible, what's clear in church history, is that there are things that a congregation can do to seek God's face. And I want you to appreciate that that's Revelation chapter 3. You see what I'm saying to you? 
that to this dying congregation, this really struggling congregation, what Jesus Christ does is issue a set of commands. He issues instructions, and they are commands that are, their purpose is to spark this congregation in its spiritual life. And I wonder, do we need to hear that? The commands to engender spiritual life. Do we need to hear that? Do you need to hear that as a Christian this evening? Let's look at them. The first one is this, that we are commanded here to rouse ourselves. So have a look at verse 2 with me. And you just look at the first two words of verse 2. So what does he say to this spiritually struggling congregation? You see the first two words, wake up, wake up. Now this really reminds me of a story um, that I'm not sure that I should share with you, but I'm going to share anyway, because it's too late. I've just mentioned it. Um, so here we go. <laughs> We're already in there. So no turning back now. You've got to bear in mind that this was before I was converted. Okay. And I am no way uh, proud of this story uh, at all. But, um, it happened when I was hauled by my boss at the time uh, into his office uh, to get a row. I was in trouble. And uh, he hauled me into the office. I can't remember what I did wrong, to be honest. I, can't, I cannot remember um, persistent lateness or something along those lines. And my boss takes me into the office and he sits me down. So he's seated and I'm seated. So you can try and picture the scene. My boss was one of those chaps who never looks at you, square in the face. You know, one of those guys, can't, no eye contact. And so he was turns a, a little bit to the side and he went on and on, on. I mean, he really went on and he was going through my job profile, going through the whole thing, giving me this row. Here's the thing, it's really hot and stuffy in the room and I, I'm sat and he can't, he's not looking at me and I'm, I sat there and I, he goes on and he goes on, it's hot and stuffy, heavy atmosphere. What happens? Sitting there, I fell asleep. I fell asleep. Now, not for long, like just for a moment, but I dozed off getting a row from my boss. And I, I remember the moment where I came to. You know, like I remember that, oh, that sudden moment. And, and I sat up and I looked over to see if he had caught me. And he hadn't, and I was sort of slapping the side of my face, and, and I remember thinking the consequences could be dreadful here. The consequences could be, I, you can see what would the consequences be. I mean, I'm sleeping through a row for my boss. The consequences are I'm losing my job. Now friends, in all seriousness, isn't that the message from Christ? Perhaps to some of us, even in the room tonight, like, what does he say to these people who are spiritually in spiritual slumber? He says, wake up. Spiritually rouse yourselves. Waken or else the consequences are going to be desperate for us. The consequences are going to be dire. But then he goes on. And maybe you see the next one, do you? Because we are told not only to rouse ourselves from our slumber... But we are also told to reinforce ourselves. Now have a look at verse 2 again. Look at verse 2. Please look at it. Do you see? Wake. wake. And then Christ implores these now awoken Christians. Do you see? To strengthen what remains. Now you can see the idea, can't you? It's not just a command from Christ to waken up. It's a call to, in a sense, it's a call to arms, a call to activity. Do you know what we're to do? We're to wake and to work. 
That if we want to fortify the, the any sense of spiritual life that's still here in our hearts, what are we to do? We're to put real effort into spiritual disciplines. Isn't that it, friends? That we are to pursue with all our might the means of grace. We rouse ourselves and we reinforce ourselves. Strengthen what remains, Christian friend. Then the third command issued by our commander. Look at verse 3. You can see it, can't you? You know where I'm going. If you look at the beginning of verse 3, he says, then remember, this is the next imperative, remember what you have received and heard. Can I just turn this to you? What do you think he has in mind? And I'm sure if we asked the boys and girls, they would get, get this. Remember what you have received and heard. Friends, you only need to turn back in your mind to Harrison's reading. I mean, think about it. How were those dry bones awoken? What happened? You'd say to me, the Spirit of God. But what did the Spirit of God use? Did you notice in the first part of that chapter? It was the Word of God. The Word of God. The Word of the Lord. To counteract our spiritual drowsiness. We are to linger long on the good news. You and I are to ponder and to recall, remember, the great things that many of us have heard over years and over decades, the great things, the marvelous things of Christ's redemptive work. We are to remember what we have received and heard. And then the last command, wow, the last command's the most difficult. I wonder if you can get it. Do you see it? It's midway through verse 3. He tells a dying congregation. In fact, he commands a dying congregation, to repent. And I think you're with me, are you, that that is the most challenging of all of those instructions from our Lord, that you and I are not just to recognize that we have soiled garments, that we are to address the sin in our lives. You are not just called to see your sin. You're called to turn away from that sin as well, Christian friend. And so can I make this as personal as I possibly can? What is it for you? Like you're assessing your heart, thinking about your life just now. Like what is it that you have to turn from? What is it that you have to repent from? Christian friends, what is it? I mean, is it, is it actually just like Sardis for you? Is it that you're just going after the, the things of the world that you're worshiping at the altar of wealth and material gain? Are you worshipping at the altar of sexual immorality like these people? Is it actually really good stuff? You're just getting totally twisted and wrong. Are you idolizing your family? you idolizing your friends? you idolizing time off? No matter what it is for you in your life, surely tonight you take a step back and you consider Christ's commands. We're to rouse ourselves from our slumber, reinforce ourselves, remember, and we repent unless... Like, what's Christ promised to do? Did you notice it? We must repent lest Christ come as a thief in the night and remove this lampstand. From our congregation, perhaps, or from our own lives. So we see reputation and we see revival. And then we, we close this evening... And with the third 
word? Okay, let's see if the kids get the third word. Rewards. Yes. There you go. I love it. Rewards. I don't know about you. Um, I'll be honest here and say that I have loved these letters in Revelation. I, you may be saying, we don't care if you've loved it or not. But I have loved going through these five letters in Revelation. Loved it. Maybe for a couple of reasons. Partly because they're so relevant, aren't they? If you've been here for the sermon series, you've read these. They're so relevant for 21st century living, especially in a city like this. So that's part of the reason I've loved it. The other reason I've loved it is they're so uplifting. You know, for every letter to have a promise from Christ to the Christian who conquers and perseveres. I mean, do you see actually how practical that is for your life? Like, if you're down in the dump spiritually this evening as a Christian, do you see practically what you can do? If you're really struggling as a Christian, you can go to those letters. Like, go to the end of those letters, and you will find a promise from Christ Jesus to you. You can see what is yours in Christ Jesus. If you're down in the dumps and struggling, you will hear things like, you will not face the second death. You will hear the promise that you will receive from Christ a white stone of acceptance and admission. Do you see how exciting it is? Do you see how uplifting these letters can be? But what about tonight? What about tonight? What is the promise that Christ Jesus gives his people this evening? Okay. Well, we could, if we had longer, which we don't, but if we had longer, we could think about this promise of representation. So look at the end of verse 5. Do you see that there's a promise to you of representation? Christ promises to the conquering Christian, he's going to confess your name before God. So you get that, don't you? That's that's Luke 12 all over again, isn't it? That if we confess, if we acknowledge Christ on earth, what's this promise? Christ is going to acknowledge us before God. So we could look at that representation. Move back the way, put it in reverse. In verse 5, go back a wee bit. We could also look at the promise of permanence. Do you see that halfway through verse 5? Christ promises you, Christian friends, that your name will never, ever be blotted out of the book of life. I'm rested in that. Isn't that glorious? Permanently with the Lord Jesus Christ. My name never to be blotted out. Never to be blotted out. So we could look at representation. We could look at permanence. But it's the third element that I want to draw your attention to. And we're closing with this. If you look at the start now, we've reversed in verse 5, we're reversing verse 5. Look at the start of verse 5. So what's the promise? You got it? The one who conquers will be clothed in white garments. Now, do, do you know what is in view there? There's the idea of atonement, first of all. The end of Revelation talks about us having our robes washed in the blood of Christ. The idea of Christ atoning for our sin. White garments. There is also the idea of double imputation in the white garments. You know, Zechariah chapter 3, the Lord takes Joshua's soiled garments from him and replaces them with clean robes. Atonement view here, friends. And double imputation. But if we're not very careful, we'll miss the most beautiful element. And here I'm going to end, but being so cheesy. And you're going to excuse me if I'm cheesy just for a moment and a little bit soppy. 
here, okay? I'm going on holiday, so even if I'm soppy, I can run away and I won't face uh, your ridicule. But I am going to be cheesy. you just got to forgive me and bear with me. Every day at home in the manse, at lunchtime, if we're about, uh, Catherine and I will go walk together. So like not a long walk, you know, like 15 or 20 minutes. If we're about, if I'm at home, Catherine's at home, we'll go a walk. And this is where I get a little bit cheesy. That's my favorite moment of the day. You can see what I don't laugh. My son laughed. <laughs> Unbelievable. I will deal with him. Be assured. The rod of discipline will come out. But it really is. You know, like it really is my favorite moment of the day. Like you, you can appreciate why. You know, we can walk together, like just for 15, 20 minutes. And what we do is we talk. You know, we, we like it's, there's a, there's a connection. I, there's an opportunity for question. Like I can ask Catherine about how her day is gone. And again, without sounding too cheesy, I can inquire of her heart. And like, well, very often when we walk, talk about what we've been reading that day in scripture. And I'll ask points for prayer and she will do the same with me. Do you see that the idea we walk together and we talk and there's intimacy and there's, there's love. Can I ask you whether you like that idea or not? Do you like that idea? And Christian friend, look at verse 4 and the end of verse 4. Now what is, I think, one of the most beautiful ideas in all of the Bible. What is said to us of these robes? Do you see? What is the promise to you? Do you see it? You're going to wear these garments of purity. And what does Jesus say? As you walk with Christ Jesus. And aren't you with me? Isn't that one of the most special promises? Isn't it the most special image that's before us there? I mean, do you, do you see what the promise is? Do you? If we persevere fighting our sin, worshipping the Lord Jesus Christ, what is ahead of us? What, what lies ahead of us? There is coming to you a heavenly Emmaus road moment. There's a time where you are going to walk Side by side with your Lord. A time where you're going to walk in, in that bond of intimacy, that connectedness, walking, talking with Jesus, walking in love with Him. I mean, don't you, doesn't that bring your heart to praise God? Doesn't it? Ah, but if it does not, then surely what will is considering how that comes about. How is it possible that you, a sinner, can have that ahead of you? Hmm? Think of it for a moment. You are only able to wear those white garments of purity. Why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ, for a Christian friend, was willing to be stripped off his robes, his garments removed violently from him, pinned to a cross to bear your sin. You see how it comes about? How does it come about? How is it possible a sinner like, like you, like me, could possibly have intimacy in walking with Christ Jesus? Consider it only because Christ Jesus... Only because he was willing to endure utter separation from God on that cross. Only because he was willing to be alienated from the one that he loved so dear. That's how these blessings come to you, Christian friend. So I do urge you not to fritter away an opportunity for reflection this summer. Friends, let's look at our hearts. Let's consider the life of our 
congregation. Let's cut through the superficiality and let us be a church that is so much less concerned with our names and much more concerned with the name that is above all other names. Let's be a church that is concerned for the name of Christ Jesus as Lord. Let's pray. You are God, and you are are worship because you are majestic and all-powerful. We thank you for what we learn about you in this letter, that you are the one who holds in your hand your church. And Lord God, we acknowledge this and we worship you for this. We do pray, Lord God, in thankfulness for this portion of Scripture, but we ask that you would work in our hearts. Would you refine us, O God? Would you work by your Holy Spirit? Would you bring the sinews and the bones and the tendons together again that we might rise a vast army ready to proclaim the name of Christ? And we pray in that name right now. Amen.